In just one generation, the internet connected people across the globe. And now, slow news days are a thing of the past. It's a lot to keep track of, but WHIP has you covered with local, national, and international stories. Join us for a rational look at a complex world. This is Rational Radio on WHIP. Welcome back to Rational Radio here on WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station. I am your host, Julius Toth. Uh, join in the booth with me are my friends over at the news department, Evan and Amelia. This is Sam. I just completely, I'm so, <laughs> I'm sorry, you don't it's understand. Just, it's okay. on, on it's the okay. I know, I know, I'm, I'm just, oh I'm gosh. so scatterbrained, I'm so sorry. It's Sam, fine. Sam, yes. In Hello. my defense, it is Sam's first time mm-hmm. on the radio, congratulations. Um, ah, thank you. It's a lot of fun, you're going to have a great time, I promise it. Um, how are you two doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, had some great classes today. You know, always eager to get learning. Um, and yeah, my classes were cool. Lunch was good. I'm I'm, here. I'm swell. Um, I'm so caffeinated right now, mm. but I'm chugging through. So <laughs> yeah, caffeine has been pretty much my main source of energy uh, since I woke up uh, two days ago. I've been awake. Uh, that's that's a lie. That's okay. a lie. But I am drinking a lot of coffee. Um, because it's crunch time in the semester, you gotta the classes are underway. Yeah, it's, it's real now. It's real. It is real. You can't just go home and do nothing anymore. You have to read or yeah. do homework. There's <sighs> big time consequences now. Yeah, definitely. So we're gonna get into it right now because here at Rational Radio, we're all news all the time. So we gotta get back into these details. You know, I I just need to preface this by saying that I am so tired of constantly talking about the government shutdown. And having said that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the government shutdown because it's a developing crisis in this country and we need to be kept abreast of the issue that's developing currently in Washington. So we're on day 33. Um, I would say have a round of applause, but uh, it's not something to applaud. It's a very bad situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, And currently, you know, people are some people are saying that there's no end in sight, that this could go on indefinitely. Interesting thing to note, and it's something that gives me a little bit of hope, is that more than 100 congressmen and women have either refused their biweekly salary of $6,700 or they forwarded it to charity to demonstrate solidarity with the federal employees affected by the shutdown. Of course, uh, congressional salaries are not affected by government shutdowns because their their pay is written into the Constitution. Um, So they're going to get paid either way, but a couple of them... I think a fifth of all congressmen and women have uh, somehow deferred their money off. So that's 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 good news. You know, they're paying attention to us. It's a little bit of solidarity with the worker. Yeah. Yeah. But um, currently there are uh, two different votes uh, that are going to pop up in the Republican-controlled Senate. Uh, and these have the aim to end the partial government shutdown. This news is all coming to us from the Virginia pilot, by the way. Uh, just a little addendum. Uh, one vote on Thursday will be on a bill reflecting uh, President Trump's demand for a border wall funding in exchange for temporary protections for some immigrants that Democrats have said that they would not uh, pass. They refuse that deal, but it's still going forward. And a second vote is set for a measure already passed by the Democratic-controlled House to reopen the government through February 8th. And it doesn't allow money for a border wall, but it does give bargainers a little bit of breathing room and more time to talk. 
So with these bills, uh, we're looking forward and we're going to see both of these bills voted on on Thursday. I'm curious, um, do you either of you think that Republican senators are willing to continue to let the government be shut down? Or do you think they're going to pursue one of these uh, compromises, even if they are temporary, in order to relieve some of the pressure on federal employees? I think that the um, Republican senators and or let's say Republican congressmen uh, maybe don't disagree fundamentally with the Democratic Party leaders. I just think that there is a big issue amongst the Republican Party of not being able to stand up to Donald Trump and not being able to um, speak out and do what they think is right because they have to stick with what the party is saying, especially in these times where um, you see everything is a partisan issue. So that would be my biggest uh, issue or critique of the Republican Congress, Congress people. Right. You know, I think it would be very interesting to see a a fracture in the Republican Party at this point in time. And I don't say good or bad. I say interesting because it would be I, I don't know if that's precedented to have a a party who controls the executive branch and the legislative branch, but have them be in like two different factions, you know, on these issues. I think Mitch McConnell has done a wonderful job getting his, uh, you know, his elected officials, the people under his party to toe the party line and you know, prop up the president and help him out with his initiatives. Uh, but it would be interesting, I think, if a couple of people started becoming a little bit more independent, you know, kind of get out mm-hmm. under that, mm-hmm. that, that party sort pressure. Sort of like uh, the Bull Moose Party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a throwback a little, to little history there. American history, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's what's going on right now with, you know, as far as, as the, the votes that are coming up. In the, the House and the Senate, um, you know, it's it's another problem that's occurring because of this shutdown. Besides the obvious problem of having uh, over seven hundred thousand federal employees, you know, be affected either furloughed or asked to work without pay, um, this is quickly becoming it's it's gone from just a bureaucratic blip, you know, like a, a small issue. It's quickly ballooned into you know, something that's setting the record for how long we've been, you know, shut down. And I, I'm starting to wonder how this is going to affect Donald Trump's presidency, like his, his uh, person, like his... Uh, legacy, if you will. His legacy and his public approval. It's know? definitely down right now, like seriously down. I think it's his uh, disapproval rating is like the highest it's ever been in his presidency. Right, I think, I think Politico, yeah, Politico came out with a... A survey that said 57%, 57% of registered voters disapprove of the job that the president's doing. And this, it, it's it's something important to keep in mind that, that all good governments should is, is public approval. You know, you're either going to rule with the consent of the people because they're happy or you're going to rule because the people are feared of you, like they're scared of you, you know. And obviously in this country, we've done a very good job of maintaining a... Uh, you know, a, a good relation between the government and the people. I think for the most part, we've tried, you know, we're not autocratic like some nations are, but it is important to keep in mind that the public opinion has to be kept above a certain, you know, threshold. Otherwise, you're going to have a lot of people who are very discontent with the government. And it's it's super interesting how he like flip-flopped on his stance on the shutdown specifically, like how he was like, I will shut down the government for this border wall and then immediately once public opinion started changing and like the shutdown started really affecting real people 
he's now pushing it off, all of the responsibility off on the Democrats, yes, and, like so, trying to take a step back. Yeah, I think that is very interesting. It happened on the December 11th meeting with Nancy Pelosi and, Trump, and uh, Chuck Schumer. He said, uh, I'm proud to shut down the government for board security. I will be the one to shut the government down, and I'm not going to blame you for it. I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down. And Chuck Schumer replied that they don't think they should shut. We don't think. Let me see what the exact quote was. We shouldn't shut down the government over a dispute. Is what he said. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, end quote. End quote. <laughs> this was in a televised meeting in the, the White House. There have been a couple of those. Recently, yeah, there have been, mm-hmm. you know, between the heads of our government. So it's, it is it is interesting to see how the narrative sort of uh, changes as time goes on, as, as public opinion starts to get turned against this what was uh, once and has historically been in the past a temporary impasse, you know, we are looking forward at at something that has no really clearly defined end goal. Mm -hmm. You know, it's either one side budgets or the other, but I'm not sure if, you know, that sort of, you know, I don't know if that coercion can take place on either side. You know, one, one is going to have to bend. That's what a compromise is, but it just seems that both sides are so rigid in what they want in their demands that, um, you know, I, I, ex- I fully expect and I would not be surprised if this became uh, two months. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the, the Democrats said that we will not fund a border wall. You, that they, they do not think that that is a good idea. That is also something that Trump promised that the American people would not pay for. So it's, it's kind of difficult to say that their opinion really has not changed. The president's has. The president has come out and said that Mexico is going to pay for the wall, which I think we all knew that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But if you make a campaign promise, you should try. You should, you should give it a shot. <laughs> yeah. But but now it's a fact that we need a wall. I said we're going to have a wall, and I want the wall. It seems like this is something that he feels that is of utmost importance to get accomplished, but for what reason, I don't know. You know, when, when, whenever he said that he was going to make Mexico pay for the wall, I, my first thought was, okay, he's going to raise tariffs on Mexico. And mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that NAFTA, like, allows that. I don't, well, I don't know. Well, he Are wants we renegotiating to drop- that one? I think there have been some... Yeah, I think there has been some renegotiations on NAFTA. Have there not? NAFTA's been pretty controversial because yeah. of the the restrictions that it puts on the United States as far as how we are able to engage in commerce on, you know, the continent. It is mm-hmm. very freeing for business, you know, to allow the, 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 you know, all of the logistical things and all of the trade agreements that have been put in place by NAFTA, but there still also has been a lot of you know, pushback against it, mostly from people, I think, who also hold that the United States should kind of go back to more isolationist. That's always been a, a an undercurrent of U.S. politics, though, is the idea to kind of retreat back into our shell, which I yeah. don't think is right either. I don't think so. A lot of people want to say, oh, George Washington said it. He was right <laughs> the whole time. But it's really, especially in a world that's so globalized, for lack of a better word, it, we, there's no way that that would – we are not able to sustain ourselves economically. Yeah, so, we're so con- like interconnected mm-hmm. with everything now. It's almost impossible to yeah. try and retreat. I remember one of my professors, Barry Vacker. Mm-hmm. Shout out hey. to Barry Vacker. He uh, used the term "global village" um, with us. So you know, with our smartphones, our, our social media, the whole world is connected instantly through all of uh, 
their social media platforms. So one thing going on on this side of, of the world is instantly relayed to the next. Mm-hmm. And that goes with information, and that will go along with economics. Things that happen over here will economically affect what happens uh, abroad. So just like in a village, everyone will hear about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And certainly historically in the, in the 20th century, the United States was not successful at its efforts to isolate itself. You know, in both world wars, we were eventually dragged in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, you know, and after World War II, we, were, we really were like at center stage of world politics. Oh, yeah. So there wasn't, you know, there wasn't even a, an ability to recoil from that. We had obligations to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, in the eyes of our administration, of course. So um, I don't think that any serious isolationist. No, and even back, like, during, like, we helped the French during the French Revolution. I think the isolation of policies were very quickly abandoned. Mm -hmm. Um, Even at the the start of founding of America. Right. Yeah, they don't hold up. No. Underwater, yeah. No, no. Although, and I think I mentioned this on a previous version of Rational Radio, Trump has been talking about pulling out of NATO. Yes. Well, he's not been talking about, but he's been thinking about it behind closed doors to several aides. Yeah. That 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 thought is even crossing his mind. It's like, uh, yikes, you know. I believe we did talk about that and how that's probably exactly what Vladimir Putin would like him to do. We had an excellent discussion about that. that. Was a good one. You should go online. <laughs> do you have any idea where these podcasts are? They're anchor. On... They're oh. on Anchor. Anchor, <laughs> Sam. All right. Thank you, Sam, for the anchor plug. Uh, you should go on to Anchor. Check us out, uh, WHIP. Uh, look for the Rational Radio broadcast. You can listen to us talk exactly about that and, uh, you know, get yes. more. And, and we have multiple other podcasts on there as well that we'd love for you to check out. That's mm-hmm. true. we got to increase that bandwidth. I mean, <coughs> uh, reach people. Yes. Um, it's the businessman news coming out. But that's where we find ourselves with the government shutdown. Day 33, uh, to be honest. Not much end of sight. Both sides are really not recoiling from this situation uh, to the detriment of the American people and the American landscape. Once again, remember that none of the national parks are getting cleaned up, so they're currently uh, overfilling with sewage. So uh, congratulations, America. Yes. (laughs) Your amber waves of grain. Oh, man. It's, it's, It's bad. But we are going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk uh, more about some negotiation. We're going to talk about some deals that have been made uh, in this nation. Deals that any businessman would be proud of. They say, yes. look at that. They say, hey, that's a good deal. So you're going to find out all about that when we come back. Welcome back. Whoa, I'm really close to the mic. Welcome back to <laughs> Rational Radio here on WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station. We're joining the booth. We're all here. We're all talking about news. You know it. That's our that's our job. Well, I mean, we don't get paid, but it's our job. It's our passion. It's our <laughs> passion. It's our life. It's what we're doing. And before the commercial break, I dropped a spicy hint about what we were going to be talking about here. Deals. Deals. Negotiations. Negotiations. Business. Okay. All these words and more. We're going to be talking about it right now. Um, while the government's been shut down, there's also been another shutdown of sorts in Los Angeles. There has been a teacher's strike. Um, it has not lasted as long as the government shut down, but it has been going on in the uh, Los Angeles Unified School District, which is, serves uh, close to, I think, 400,000 students. So this is a major uh, provider of education in the United States. And 
a little bit of background on it. Teachers have been working in Los Angeles without contracts due to uh, stalled negotiations between the city of Los Angeles and the teaching union that represents them, which is United Teachers Los Angeles. Um, a strike was voted for in August with 98% of the voting members voting in favor of the strike. This didn't immediately happen, though, because California law states that teacher strikes must be mediated by the state first, which takes time. There's a you know, process, the bureaucratic process that mm. these, this union has to go through before they can actually walk out of, you know, their classrooms. Um, well, this, this mediating process went, came and went, and they weren't able to resolve the situation. Uh, so the strike commenced, and it's, it had been going on for six days, and they were striking for a number of reasons. Uh, chiefly, they wanted a raise. They wanted a 6.5% raise with back pay, I think, two years. Um, so that was a big demand. They wanted also increased staff. Uh, ex- explicitly, they wanted to enforce a cap on class sizes. Uh, one class had up to 49 students, which if, if, you, if you've been to high school, that's insane. That's a ridiculous yeah. amount of work. Some of my classes here have much less. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And th- it's, it's clear, it's obvious that they were inflating the class sizes because if you have more people in one class, you can hire less teachers. Yeah. So it was a cost-cutting measure. It, it, they definitely were not thinking about the teachers. They certainly weren't thinking about the students. They were thinking about their bottom line, which is unacceptable. Um, and the union rightfully said that this was unacceptable. And they also wanted uh, nurses and librarians for every middle and high school that would work full-time. Uh, recently, the school district has not been providing that. Um, and they also wanted to hire new counselors, deans, and social workers, all of whom the union also represents in addition to teachers. Um, the union argued that this money could come from the $2 billion the L.A. Unified School District has um, as liquid capital. Um, but the district claims that that money was necessary for daily operations so that they would avoid insolvency. Now, I don't know much about running a school district in a major metropolitan area, <laughs> but does it really take $2 billion in the bank to do? Yeah, I mean, if you have to have $2 billion liquid at all times, that is a little that is a little interesting, especially for uh, a, a school. Now, I went to a pretty pretty big high school. Uh, it, was, it had a very large school district, therefore a large tax base. Our school was, uh, uh, it was pretty wealthy. Um, the, um, the school district itself was pretty wealthy. Um, I had nurses. I had librarians. I had multiple librarians, multiple nurses in the high school because our high school was almost the size of a college campus. But even in middle school, elementary school, still had nurses, still had librarians. That just seemed like something that was at every school. It was very eye-opening to see that in cases such as this one that they are considered excess personnel, especially the nurses, because I I can't count how many times I had seen kids doing stupid things in school, sliding down railings and just eating it and needing a nurse right away. I can't imagine not having a nurse, especially when I want to go home from school because I'm not enjoying my day. <laughs> but on a, in, all, in all seriousness, I don't know why that a nurse was not considered essential personnel. From a liability standpoint, it's just nightmarish mm-hmm. you know, to say, imagine if, God forbid, a student has a heart attack and dies. You know, that happens to kids. Kids go into, uh, you know, cardiac arrest. A, have, yeah, exactly. They go into cardiac arrest sometimes if they have a heart condition. Imagine mm-hmm. if that, you know, God forbid, would happen. 
Yeah. You know, what would the school district say? Oh, we couldn't, we didn't, couldn't afford. And I understand that, you know, when I said, when I was talking about the $2 billion, like incredulously, like, oh, you really need that much? I understand that the the job that they have is, is difficult and it requires a lot of money, but I think that they can afford to meet some of the uh, demands of the people. Yeah, just for, like, the fact that these teachers had to basically, like, beg for pretty simple stuff, like class sizes not being 48 kids. In Philadelphia specifically, like, our ratio of student to teacher is for every five students, there should be one adult in the classroom. So the fact that they had one adult in a classroom of 45 kids. 50 times. Is, wow. Yeah. Just, and or just the times, complete detri- detriment of these of these children. Um, it's so awful that we're basically cutting their education and like their opportunities in their future mm-hmm. just to have two billion in the bank. Well, yeah. I mean, it's very important at, at this stage, education, uh, high school, middle school, are essential for how students are, are going to do post-school. Um, mm-hmm. Bad education systems. Like, you can tell, even when I'm walking around uh, North Philly, I see a school that is not getting the proper funding. It's very obvious. And you're just going to keep the people that go to that school in that area, not giving them any opportunities to to branch out, to be a more educated individual, and then make a... Uh, a better life for themselves where they they couldn't. So mm-hmm. that to me, the 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 fact that the um, city did not value um, schools and education that much upsets me a little bit. And I and I would like to explore the the racial diversity of these schools as well. Absolutely, mm-hmm. that's something um, you need to consider. Yes, because I know L.A. is a lot more diverse than where I came from in a little stretch of Pennsylvania we call Pennsylvania. <laughs> and there was just a it was it was pretty homogeneously white. I mean that we had our we had we had diversity, but not in the scale that definitely is in LA and it didn't seem like they were getting the priority that say I would have gotten in my school district. Right. And to have class sizes of over 40 individuals, you know, so many students, that's not just the extra workload on the teacher, but the teacher then is it will find it increasingly difficult to uh, meet their obligations in making sure the kids don't fall through the cracks, in making sure the kids get access to the help and the resources that they need. You know, when you have a class that's enormous, I mean, a lecture hall full of people that you need to be responsible for, it's just uh, a ridiculous, it's just simply preposterous. It's impossible, oh, yeah. literally impossible. In, in college, you don't have your homework, that's your fault. The, te- the professor does not really care, doesn't have to care. Because you you chose to come here. In schools, public schools, the the teacher. I mean, I remember my teachers caring about their students. Most of them cared about their students quite a bit. But if these teachers are are apathetic towards the young minds that they have to mold and teach, then it's very difficult for them to, you know, grow up essentially, be educated citizens. Which that's the future of our of our country and I just don't understand mm-hmm. why still today I remember this was an issue five years ago while we weren't getting good education uh, systems for people in almost all communities it's it's upsetting that we still don't value the future of our country yeah I you know what I don't do you want to say something um, most educational systems like at this point have stopped becoming about the children and have started becoming businesses in and of themselves which I think is like 
90% of the problem that we value money and like greed over like the actual lives and futures of these kids. And it's so horrific to see how it plays out in everyday life. And like the, it only widens as they age. Like this is not going to get better at any sense. And the fact that like teachers have to beg for the rights of their students and put their own jobs and careers at risk in order to advocate for the people they're trying to help on like the most fundamental level, I just think is so disheartening. You know, it, I think that the situation itself is disheartening, but it reassures me that the teachers are willing to go to bat for their students, mm-hmm. that they're willing to walk out. And it was, it was what really struck me as odd was that the, the Los Angeles Unified School, Depart- school District continued its operations. They still had school, and they, they said that every kid would be taught by a qualified professional. They hired a bunch of substitute teachers, basically, which yeah. a that bunch. Was, that'd be a good movie. The, <laughs> you want to auction off the, the rights to this movie? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the teachers' union definitely did not think that it was. They thought that it was, like, strike-breaking, like, illegal activity. You're not supposed to, mm-hmm. you know, hire these these replacements when your workers aren't coming in, you're supposed to negotiate with the workers. Yeah, but also it's so much more nuanced than that because families rely upon school to send their children to when they're, when like mothers and fathers or whoever's caring for their child is at work. So like it's much more strange than just strike breaking and like illegal activity because these kids need somewhere to go instead of just like staying home unsupervised. And especially if these communities are, like, underserved, then their parents have no choice but to go to work. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't an option for them. They, ca- they can't just get, like, a nanny for six days. That's, so it's incredibly hard. That's such a good point to kind of focus on the social aspect, like, the, the community impact that a school has mm-hmm. on children. One of the big concerns of parents in the school district was whether or not their kids could still get lunch at school mm-hmm. because school school is where these kids get lunch you know in most cases you know there there is food poverty in this nation and i'm sure los angeles has these problems some some areas you know they're depending on that lunch you know to to feed their kid you know for lunch right so uh, thankfully and luckily the the school district was able to pull through and they were still serving lunches during the shutdown which i think demonstrates that they at least care about that you know mm-hmm. so it wasn't a total I think they understood why, like, the position that they held in the community, and that's why they were, uh, you know, continued to operate. Well, yeah, they're they're just like any city, but especially uh, that we've we've seen highlighted, especially in pop culture, there are good areas of L.A., there are bad areas of L.A., and those kids all go to school. So you're leaving Mm -hmm. kids at home, oh, maybe they have a house in the hills, but maybe these kids have Section 8 housing. And they can't afford to get lunch. It mm-hmm. just seems to me that the city wasn't valuing the individual as much. Certainly. I mean, that's that's reflected in the attitude that they had before the strike. But thankfully, I have good news. There's, you know, we've been talking about how bad this situation yeah. was. The strike <laughs> is over. Yes, the strike as is over today. We really buried the lead on this one. <laughs> we buried it uh, 12 minutes and 40 seconds in. Yikes. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Uh, <laughs> strikers got most of their demands. They didn't get the six and a half percent salary raise. They got a six percent salary mm-hmm. raise. I'm sure they're. Did they get the back pay? They got back pay for one year, not two. Mm-hmm. Okay. They also wanted to do everything That's originally within one year, 
but now they're spacing it out over three years. Right. Okay. So, right. And, and as far as that timeline goes, they're going to want to see a full-time nurse in every school five days a week by Woo. 2020. Uh, and they're looking to reduce class size. Uh, by 2021, they're going to reduce classes by four students, which means they're going to hire more teachers. So good news for them. Uh, and also there will be additional counselors and librarians in schools. Um, the school district has gone forward and asked for more money from Sacramento. Uh, obviously the capital of California, so they have gone to the state legislator. Uh, they get 90% of their money from the state. Mm-hmm. So um, they're going to go ask for more, and they're probably going to use the $2 billion in liquid capital that they have to fund these changes over the next couple of years. But I think that as they uh, invest more in their school district, it's nice to have, from a business standpoint, it's really nice to have a ton of money. But it's better to use that money and I feel like having $2 billion in reserve was too much. I think that's an underutilization of the resources that you have. Um, and I really don't – I don't think that they're going to go bankrupt, that they're going to become insolvent based on the, the strike negotiations. No, and it's one thing, yeah, for a business – to not to to not want to spend that money, but for a school a school system a public service that money's there to be spent. It's been allocated mm-hmm. for you to spend. So don't hoard it for whatever reason you you seemed like you wanted to do. Use it and use it to better the lives of the people that live within your districts. Precisely. Yeah, but it's awesome that the teachers uh, like accomplished what they at least some of what they set out to do. Yeah, That's... it looks. I'd say the teachers got a pretty big win here. Yeah, six percent and a year. When I heard two years back pay, I was thinking. That's pretty ambitious. Mm-hmm. One year, that's very solid in my opinion. Mm-hmm. However, I don't know the. Uh, uh, I, I think situation. in general that this has been a, a like a excellent example in proper negotiation and compromise. Like, I mean, it's literally just been a textbook negotiation, yeah. and it was resolved quickly mm-hmm. and in an efficient manner, civilly. All in all, I think that this is a. You got your fingers up. Oh, oh no! Okay. I was just saying, oh, so don't cut oh, to the commercial and cut oh. me off. All right, um, that happens all the time. <laughs> Look, it's, it's a fairy tale ending. Everyone's happy. Yay! The end. Uh, we're going to take. A break. You're going to let me speak real quick, okay? Because it's, <laughs> I just like to point out that we went from a story where negotiations are at a standstill for five weeks, and now we are at a story where it was done the proper way, and Incredible. everyone got what they wanted. Compromise should be seen in the government. We gotta get well. we gotta get those union guys <laughs> into Washington to try and resolve this government shutdown. That is the uh, end all and be all of it. All right, we're gonna go to a quick commercial break. Hit you with that news update. Uh, stay tuned. From WHIP News, I'm Amelia Winger. Today is Wednesday, January 23rd, and this is your WHIP News Update. The U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the Trump administration's policy of barring most transgender people from serving in the military in an unsigned 5-4 order on Tuesday, according to the New York Times. The court's five conservative-leaning members formed the majority, while its four liberal-leaning members dissented. First introduced by President Trump on Twitter in 2017, the policy was officially released by former Secretary of Defense James Mattis in 2018 and prevents a vast majority majority of individuals diagnosed with gender dysphoria from serving. After the court's decision was released, Pentagon spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Carla Gleason said that the policy was a measure to ensure that the armed forces are the most lethal and combat-effective fighting force in the world, not a ban on all transgender people from the military. 
Recent linguistic research has shown that Philadelphia court reporters do not accurately record black dialect, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. The study indicates that 40% of sentences transcribed by court reporters had mistakes, 67% of paraphrasing attempts were inaccurate, and 11% of transcriptions were labeled as gibberish. Pennsylvania court reporters must reach a 95% accuracy level to be certified. Ultimately, the findings raise doubts about court records and the fairness of the local justice system. From WHIP News, I'm Amelia Winger, and this has been your WHIP News Update. Whoa. Hey, sorry to cut you off there, uh, but I am going to do my show now. So goodbye, music. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, Rational Radio. You're listening to us on WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station, beaming at you from our campus here at North Philadelphia. Welcome, welcome, welcome back. Uh, today we've been talking all about deals, how to make them and how not to make them, uh, the pros and cons of making a deal. Uh, you can buy our audiobook at whip.com. Uh, but today, now with this last talk break, we're going to talk about, uh, I, I always like to include something uh, international news, uh, usually because the first section in my productions of this radio broadcast are something with the administration and then... The second one is always something else happening in this nation. But I, I do want to remind everybody that there's a larger world out there. There's a bunch of stuff happening all the time, and we gotta, we got to learn about it. So we're going to look, take a look, look-see across the Pacific. We're going to look at our neighbors to the west, China. And specifically, we're going to look at a Chinese billionaire named Jack Ma. He is uh, the co-founder of the Alibaba Group which was originally formed to give Chinese companies a presence on the internet in order to expedite exports to the wider global economy. So basically, uh, manufacturers in China had a bunch of products to sell. They needed a way to get that into the Western market. When the internet started popping off, they went to Jack Ma's company and they said, hey, build us an online store so we can talk to distributors around the world. And Jack Ma said, Give me a lot of money and I'll do it. And that's basically, that's how he made all his money. Um, uh, his his Alibaba group has since grown with lots of American investment to be one of the largest tech firms on the planet. And recently, Jack Ma, it has been disclosed that he is an official member of the Communist Party of China. And when I heard this news, it brought up a question that I've been having in my head for a very long time. And it's how can China reconcile its foundations in communism with this, this rise of Chinese wealth held by private individuals, you know, at the heads of these gigantic billion-dollar international corporations. Um, you know, China is very much at a crossroads in its history. You know, over the past 25 years, this massive amount of foreign capital has been flowing into China ever since the... Uh, Chinese Communist Party has kind of relaxed its stance on controlling its people. Now, I say relaxed, that's in big, big, big air quotes. Um, but this capital has been, for the most part, appropriated by individuals in order for them to run businesses. And since China's a communist nation, meaning that it's run by the Communist Party, you know, it's kind of hard to reconcile such extreme private ownership and, you know, this supposedly communist state. But the party has adopted this pragmatic attitude towards 
you know, this the power of material wealth to build up institutions, and it's been allowing elements of capitalist society to infiltrate China. I think that the rise of tycoons like Jack Ma is an indication of this. You know, you shouldn't see a figure like Jeff Be- Bezos in China because the, you know, the 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 gears that grease the economy are just not conducive to private ownership of wealth. You know, it's it's textbook. You know, on paper, a communist country. So, do you have any opinions? Like, what do you? How do you think? How do you think they're able to kind of resolve this? You know, this this split almost. This. Well, I think that uh, especially in uh, communist China, that it's um. Uh, it, it is definitely interesting to see these mega billionaires in uh in 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 that sort of society and it was an interesting point that you brought up uh of like a jeff bezos but in china i don't think we would have a jeff bezos be that much involved in our political parties that is absolutely true i mean i'm sure that jeff bezos is registered one way or another absolutely but registration in a party in the united states is not the same as registration in the communist party in china uh, there are a lot more, it's a lot more involved when you're a member of the Communist Party in China. Mm-hmm. You know, the party expects things of you. You're a party member. You know, you have an obligation to your state and to your, you know, your comrades to do that. But I think China's been making this strange trade. I think the reason why these individuals can exist and we can see this this strange power dynamic between uh, wealthy people and this this state whose ideology is to distribute wealth and dismantle these institutions of rich people um you know it's china's really been making this transition from pure communism into this hybridized version um now granted any business that's in china still requires a section of the uh, upper management to basically be beholden to the principles of the communist party they want to make sure that the economic activities occurring at these firms do not conflict with the direction of the party. Um, but they've still allowed, you know, what during Mao Zedong's period of power would be viewed as absolutely unacceptable and would be, like, violently dismantled. Yeah, well, I think um, as they shift towards this more sort of communist, capitalist sort of um, oh, economic system uh, that... If I were the Chinese party and I was seeing what what happens in America where there's PACs and where there's people that, like, Ted Cruz, that will take money and that will be his opinion, I would want to have, I would want to cultivate those billionaires and I would want to make them loyal to our cause. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, it's almost like they're becoming a part of the government elite in and of themselves like they're allowed to have this wealth so that they can continue to advocate for the specific party so i think that's the only reason yeah well i think once you have like a certain amount of wealth and like it is an ungodly amount of wealth but like you hear about people that like heads of networks heads of studios that play golf with prominent politicians Mm -hmm. that's just always a shady that's just always a shady thing like if you ever have enough money to play golf with a politician (laughs) Number one, you've made it, but number two, you are pretty almost equally influential because the politician could just be the figurehead and you could pay them to say, or you could, I don't want to say pay, but you could have common interests mm-hmm. and you support a pack that he ta- that, that he takes money from or she takes money from because we do have a diverse house now and a diverse government now, True. which is great. <laughs> um, and then 
you you can essentially own politicians if you're rich enough. I don't Wealth know if you guys watch power. a lot of HBO, but there's always people playing golf with politicians and telling them to do <laughs> shady things. <laughs> so House of cards. Oh, House so of good. Card. Well, that's Netflix. <laughs> right. Well, but hey, yeah. Ballers. Close. There's some of that on Ballers. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, I um, and it's interesting. Jack Ma was talking. He Jack Ma recently opened up uh, trading for Alibaba. He opened up like an IPO, and he I mean, he made so much money. Oh, he's probably killing it. Yeah, he's he's Can't obviously set for life. But when he was opening on the New York Stock Stock Exchange, you know, he came to America and he did it. And he was talking with people, and he somebody asked him. He was like, he you know basically to the effect of like, you are this mega tycoon in this communist country. How do you balance? your obligations to your business with the obligations to your nation. And he basically said that he he described his position as um, considering the needs of the shareholders third behind the customers first and the employees second. And I think that this demonstrates the great syncretism that we've witnessed between communism and capitalism in China during the last, you know, 25 years. We've seen this, you know, incorporation of private individuals owning wealth as something that is acceptable in his corporate um, philosophy his corporate culture that he described there he's talking you know he is first he's not beholden to the shareholders because in any american corporation or any corporation around the world obviously the shareholders are going to come first and that's because corporations are invented to make people money a very specific number of people, very specific individuals. That's that's the job of a corporation. That's why it exists. So, you know, to see this completely radical approach to business, you know, I don't think that it would be possible for Jack Ma to do the work that he does without adopting that, you know, that sort of, I don't want to say it's like a leftover from communist thought, but it, it very much is a concern you know, very very much like work concern, very much like concerned with the welfare of the nation over, you know, yourself. I think it's interesting. I would agree. I uh, I think that especially with a um. The the just the fact that the he owns so much wealth in in that sort of society is very uh. It's it's very puzzling to me. I think that the what I said earlier about the parties or the ruling government which who, whose president has no term limits a kind of cultivating and acquiring this wealth of private these these private citizens making them loyal to him it's kind of like a reverse USA certainly and I think I mean he definitely has he definitely owes everything he has to the state for not coming in and just taking <laughs> everything you yeah know? Uh, and what it, made him so special so, I guess it was a government contract that he built the website for I'm not super uh knowledgeable on this he yeah he i mean he he did he did get a lot it was in the early stages of uh china opening up to the west mm -hmm. in terms of like sharing economic ideas so i mean he did get he did get private contracts but you know he's every single step of the way he's had involvement with the communist party of china because he's he runs a business in china so there's no question you have to communicate with the party and you have to let them know what you're doing. So he's definitely been, and I think, you know, you mentioned that it's an interesting strategy to cultivate these, you use the word cultivate these billionaires and these billionaires and then harness them as as party agents, you know, agents of the state that have this 
collection of money that is not yeah. necessarily beholden to uh, public information. And they have a vested interest with the Communist Party. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. So it's a secondary economy, almost a secondary source of wealth that you can potentially harness. It is a little bit more difficult in publicly owned and traded companies to directly use that wealth, but certainly the influence that Jack Ma and other, uh, you know, obscenely wealthy Chinese tycoons, uh, the influence that they wield is is something that they can throw around on a whim. Or the I, this is this is kind of out there what I'm about to say. All right, but I don't know if we have much else to talk about. The Chinese government could use him to launder money. Ooh. Ooh. This is some James Bond stuff right now. Well, yeah, I mean, if he's already super, <laughs> super loaded, super rich, super involved in the party, but he doesn't have any obligation to disclose his money, where it comes from, where it goes, then China could be doing some for real black budget stuff. We love we conspiracy theories hey, it's, here at Rational Radio. Yes, we do. And if you'll tune into my <laughs> segment on Infowars tomorrow, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, you know... You, you jest, but uh, when you said that, I realized that China maybe doesn't need to launder money, but you know who does need to launder money? North Korea. Oh, needs to move some money around because they, they basically they, they're I mean they're such a rogue state. They, most of their money is funded through uh, like criminal activities, mm-hmm. like methamphetamine production. <laughs> and I'm not joking. A lot yeah. of a lot of meth is made in North Korea. I I uh, um, I believe it though. I've not seen the proof of it. Counter- That's mainly because I. Have not looked into it. I, yeah, they 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 are guilty of big meth guy Julius. Big, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> big into the meth scene. <laughs> uh, quote me on that. Big into the meth scene <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm running for president. Yeah, yeah this is gonna come back to haunt you. I'm glad that this is saved and recorded a podcast. <laughs> yeah. And we're posting it later to tonight. Whenever you want. Yeah, on Anchor. Don't forget to check out this podcast on Anchor. What a great plug. But not that I'm insinuating, of course, I don't want to insinuate that Jack Ma is laundering money for North Korea, and that's why he has all this wealth. And I also don't want to uh, oversimplify the the political and economic situation in China that drove them to uh, adopt this interesting hybridized form of communism and capitalism. I personally believe that it's a little bit you know, more nuanced than that, I say it for last, but um, it is something that we need to consider if we're going to fully understand and appreciate the geopolitical situation that we find ourselves in, you know, from time to time. Yeah, it definitely makes sense that they had to have co-opted like a hybrid of capitalism because they're really trying to be competitive now. And it seems like if they were simply a communist state, it's very hard to compete economically with uh, the interconnectedness of capitalism, like across the globe at this point. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it, you know it's an interesting situation. I'm I'm excited to see where China goes in the next uh, thirty to forty years, and I hope you are too, because we're all going to see where it goes. Um, but we're running out of time here in the studio. I think that's all the time we have for today. It has been an absolute pleasure uh, talking all about uh, government and politics and such and whatnot. On Rational Radio, uh, I'm your host Julius. Join me are uh, Sam and Evan. Uh, thank you. I finally got you the got my right. name. It's like uh, I'm so surprised that I did that. All right, we are going to sign off now. Take it easy, everybody. I'm going to leave you with some of that wonderful. You know it, Doctor Dog. Take it easy. <laughs>